Hello everyone and welcome to the first ever episode of Ode to the Code, a podcast on the Code of Civil Procedure. I am Aditya Prasanna Bhattacharya, the founding editor of Law School Policy Review and a loving student of Civil Procedure. I am joined by Professor Nanda Kishore, who is our in-house expert on the CPC. Now, Professor, would it be fair to say that you too are a loving student of the CPC? Hi, Aditya. Thanks for having me on your show. Yes, it would be fair to say I also am a loving student of the Code of Civil Procedure. I've, I've been involved with the Code and interacted with it in several different ways over the years. I've been a practitioner at trial, appellate and Supreme Court levels for more than 18 years. I've also been teaching at the National Law School um, and I've taught civil procedure and other types of procedure. And I've also done my MPhil on the Civil Procedure Code. Therefore, I would say I've interacted with the code in different types of ways and I have, and have a sort of multi-dimensional perspective on the code. Right, exactly, sir. And which is why it's so important that you are a part of this podcast. Now, Professor, I remember something very specific that you said to us in our first class, all the way back in July last year. You said that there is a very worrying lack of literature and discourse on civil procedure, not only in India, but also across the world. Can you elaborate upon that a little bit, please? Yes, uh, I would think that uh, based on my experience as a lawyer, um, lots of the rules of civil procedure are not well understood. There's a lot of confusion about the basic rules of civil procedure, as well as the nuanced aspects of civil procedure. Um, and also the topic as a topic of study in universities is a, is a very ignored topic in the sense that there's not much theoretical discussion about civil procedure. And this seems to be the case not only in Indian universities, but also in Western universities. Therefore, overall, I would say there's very little discussion and uh, discourse on civil procedure, much to the detriment of law students and the legal fraternity, because it's a very important topic. Um, it forms the basis for your um, advocacy in courts on the civil side. And I would think that it is a sign qua non for being a good lawyer in our country today. Right. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, Personally, I didn't really care much about the civil procedure before taking your courses. Lack of a discourse on civil procedure, good riddance, I had said to myself at one point. Uh -huh. But gradually, after having spent long hours poring over the nuances and intricacies that the code has to offer, with an obsession bordering almost on the manic, I realized something very simple. Substantive rights do not mean anything unless the procedure used to guarantee those rights is fair, straightforward, and provides a space for the interests of all the stakeholders involved. And the main objective of this podcast, therefore, is to navigate the code and the framework of civil procedure that it creates in our country, and eventually to try and ensure that you, our listeners, love the CPC as much as we do. Now, as a starting disclaimer, we promise to restrict ourselves to the principles and jurisprudence of civil procedure and not bog you down with excessive discussion on specific provisions or case law, unless absolutely necessary. Now, when we do discuss provisions or cases, rest assured, you can find the link to those sources on the corresponding post on LSPR website. Yes. If I could just add to that, Aditya. Yes, sir. I think one of the reasons why civil procedure is such a neglected topic is because it's seen as a subject which is uh, full of rules, a vast body of rules, very often conflicting, 
and which don't seem to make much sense. And there are also a large number of cases rendered both at the Supreme Court and High Court levels. So you have a huge mass of cases and rules which need to be made sense of. And this is one of the problems of civil procedure. I okay. think the object of this podcast could be to come to some sort of understanding of the principles of civil procedure as opposed to a mere mass of cases and rules. Um, and I think this would be the way forward for the subject in general. Exactly, sir. And I think what that does is it makes it more accessible to law students. Yes. And for instance, we started learning civil procedure only in third year. But if this podcast is heard by people who are studying in other batches and in universities across the country, what what will happen is that once they understand the principles that govern civil procedure, it will be very easy for them to grasp the subject. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's the saying that a good lawyer knows his cases, but a great lawyer knows his principles, the principles that underlie the cases and the rules. See, that is what makes the difference. And I think uh, our attempt should be to, to discuss the principles of civil procedure. And in my opinion, my thesis is that in India, we are yet to arrive at the principles of civil procedure, as opposed to a mass of rules and cases which have not been adequately reconciled. That's one of the reasons for the deficit in, in the topic, in the sense that that's very undernourished. There's not much theoretical discussion, and there's not much borrowing from the West either. And this has impacted our civil justice system greatly. Right. With that resolution in mind, let's move forward to the specific theme that will be discussed in this specific episode. So the, the overhanging theme today is parties to suits. Now, as you'll notice in the course of the next episodes, we won't be discussing the broad theme in general. We'll be diluting it down to a very specific issue, something that is very topical and something that provides a platform for us to discuss the theme. So parties to suits. Now, let me tell you what happened a few days back. I came across an office order issued by the Delhi High Court today to its registry. It concerns the very interesting and highly questionable practice adopted by certain plaintiffs of listing the main defendant not as defendant number one, but as defendant number two or three or some other subsequent number. Now, the object behind this is very simple, but it's villainous. So this is when the counsel for the main defendant scans the cause list for the next day, they will not be able to know whether any case has been filed against them and is listed before the court. So this ensures that the main defendant cannot appear on the first date of listing and the plaintiff can get ex parte orders very simply. So in the office order given by the Delhi High Court, a single judge bench, the court takes note of its own decision about 10 years uh, ago in a case called Mycolube India versus Magon Auto Center. And it comes up with a new process to ensure compliance. It basically says that every plaintiff in intellectual property cases has to give an undertaking at the end of the memo of parties that the defendant number one in the plaint is in fact the main defendant. Now, we must recognize that this mandatory requirement of giving an undertaking represents a certain kind of curb on the right of the plaintiff to sue, if not absolutely, then partially at least. So the question now is, sir, where is the court drawing the power to do something like this? I would think that there is not much of a curb on the principle of dominus litis. As you all know, the principle of dominus litis, which, which is an English law principle, is the principle that the plaintiff is the king of his own suit. He is entitled to add parties to the suit and choose his parties. He is entitled to choose 
uh, which causes of action he wants to join. He is entitled to choose if he is given a choice which forum he wants to approach, etc., etc. Now, by virtue of this decision, it would seem that the plaintiff is bound to give an undertaking that the defendant number one is the main contesting defendant in the suit. Now, I don't think that really infringes upon the principle of dominus litis because you're not stopped from uh, impleading all the defendants. You're not forced to implead a particular defendant. The court is only saying that having impleaded all these persons, kindly array the contesting defendant as defendant number one. So that doesn't affect your principle of dominus litis. You still have the right to choose your parties. It's right. just that you'll number them differently right. by virtue of this decision. And I might add that by virtue of the Delhi High Court original side rules 2018, which were framed under section 129 of the Code of Civil Procedure, rule 14 com confers power on the court to uh, give directions in matters of practice and procedure. Therefore, what the court has done is well within the ambit of its powers. Right. So, sir, so, um, the first thought that struck me was an attempt to try and locate this power within the CPC itself. And intuitively, what came to me first is Order 1, because Order 1 talks about parties to suits. Now, within Order 1 itself, I was unable to find any specific provision that deals with the listing of parties or the arrayal of parties, as the court has called it. So I think what the rule that comes closest to this topic is Rule 10. And for the benefit of our uh, listeners, I'd just like to read subclause 2 of Rule 10, which is that the court may strike out or add parties. And it says that the court may, at any stage of the proceedings, either upon or without the application of a party, and on such, such terms as may appear just to the court, order that the name of any party improperly joined, whether it's plaintiff or defendant, be struck out or a necessary party who should have been joined be added. Now, do you think, sir, that somehow order, 10, uh, order 1 rule 10 can be extended to cover this power or does it fall squarely within rule 14 of the Delhi High Court rules? Well, I would think that under Order 1 Rule 10, the power is more extensive. It's much greater than the extent to which it's been exercised in this particular case. As we see from Order 1 Rule 10, the court has the power to add or delete parties, which is a very great power. Now, in this particular case, the court has neither added a party nor deleted a party. It's only numbered a party as being the defendant number one. It's only said, kindly number this party as the defendant number one, so that his name is shown in the cause title and uh, in the cause list, and so that if he is the contesting defendant, he can appear when the case is called before any ex parte relief is given to the plaintiff. So I would say that uh, this, would, this is actually uh, not a big deal insofar as order one rule 10 is concerned, because there the powers are much wider more extensive and uh, affect the uh, civil process in a much deeper way. I mean, if you haven't impleaded somebody as a party, the court can go to the extent of adding that person as a party, which is a much greater power than the power which has now been exercised, I would think. Right. So, sir, um, at the very onset, you said that this um, decision of the Delhi High Court, this yes. mandatory requirement, yes. does not really affect the principle of dominus litis, yes. as traditionally understood. Yes. However, there is this idea of two competing interests in civil procedure, which is yes. one, the right of the plaintiff um, to sue and the right of the plaintiff to sue in a manner that he or she so pleases, yes. which is dominus litis, obviously. Yes. And the other principle is the necessity of the court and the power of the court to do justice. Yes. And so do you think that this decision falls within the latter category? Yes, I think it's very interesting that you've brought this up. Because even though we understand the Code of Civil Procedure 1908 
um, as it exists in India to be an adversarial model of civil procedure, wherein the plaintiff and the defendant is left to their own devices to choose their own parties, join their causes of action, lead their own evidence, etc., etc. We still nonetheless see this tension in the rules where the court is given residuary powers to intervene in the process. So the court can join certain parties or delete certain parties. The court can make uh, other changes to the progress of the litigation. And I think this is very interesting because even if you study the Indian Evidence Act um, or any, other, any of the other statutes pertaining to civil procedure, you will see that there is this tension between the adversarial principle, the principle that the parties have to fight it out, and the principle that the court also will have a say. The court will also intervene if necessary. The court will supervise and control the proceedings, etc. So I think this is a typical, uh, this is a very interesting case where this debate can be uh, played out very well, where you can argue that on the one hand, um, the principle of dominus litis is being uh, weakened. And on the other hand, uh, the court's power to intervene in the adversarial process is being strengthened. Right. So, so let's say, in this very case, you were one of the pleaders. Yes. Let's say you were representing the plaintiff in this case. Now, would you consider it a legitimate strategy to do what the plaintiff was attempting to do? And when I say legitimate, um, there are several shades to that word. One yes. meaning of legitimacy can be that it's allowed by the court. Yes. The other can mean that it's within the ethics of the practice of litigation. Yes. Where would you place something like this? Yes. You see, uh, before the office order dated 4-5-2019, namely the office order by which a learned single judge of the Delhi High Court uh, directed that a memo of party should be filed in all IPR litigation and wherein the plaintiff undertakes that the defendant number one is the contesting defendant before this direction had been issued. There was no such direction in force, that is clear. Further, it's clear that in the case of Microlube India versus Magan Auto Center, which was relied upon by the Delhi High Court while issuing this direction on 4 5 2019. Um, in that case, also there was no direction issued by the Delhi High Court. Further, the defendant was not on caveat, so he did not have a right to be heard in the matter when the matter was being taken up ex parte. Therefore, I would say in the facts and circumstances of the case, if the opposite side hasn't filed caveat and there's no order passed by the Delhi High Court requiring you to name the defendant number one uh, as the first, as the contesting defendant, then you're not really doing anything terribly wrong because you're just playing the game, uh, the adversarial game. You know that it is within the scope of your powers to do this and therefore you've done it. But after the issuance of this office order, yep. if you violate it and not make a contesting defendant, the defendant number one, then you are in trouble. Then you're doing something wrong. You're adopting a sharp practice. Right. So, so let's go into the practicalities of this a little bit. So let's say that you are um, the counsel that has been retained by one of the parties in this matter and you represent them in most of their litigation. Now, when the single judge is saying that the counsel for the play, uh, defendant, um, the main defendant checks the cause list for the next day and is not able to figure out that a matter is listed, can you elaborate upon that a little bit, please? How do you, how, how do you check the cause list and know that a matter has been listed and then you appear yes. in court? I'm not too familiar with the practice adopted in the Delhi High Court. Uh, insofar as civil cases in Karnataka are concerned, with which I am most familiar, if you have filed a, a, a case, a suit, you have presented a plaint and you're seeking ex parte relief, generally it is not available to be checked 
uh, online. So you, the defendant cannot make out whether somebody has filed a suit and seeking ex parte relief against him by checking the cause list. Um, however, if the defendant has filed a caveat, then of course, as per the code, you will have issued, you will have gotten notice of the case which has been filed, and you will have a right to get a copy of the application filed and contest the matter. But in in, in the Delhi High Court, it appears on a, on a basis of on the basis of what I've read so far, that there is a practice of the uh, the cases filed also being put into the online system, and yeah. counsel can indeed check it online. If that is the practice, then of course this direction issued by the court is a welcome step in the right direction because opposite sides uh, would love to know what's happening and would, would be given an opportunity to contest the matter. Of course, the fact that they haven't filed KVIT is another thing, but still uh, they would be given due uh, notice of the case that's been filed against them. Right. So, sir, um, since you've been mentioning KVIT uh, with a lot of emphasis, um, a thought comes to my mind that do you think such a requirement dilutes ne the necessity of filing a caveat? Because the whole idea of the caveat is that once that ex parte, uh, once that injunction application has been filed, you'll get to know and you now have to appear. And the idea behind a caveat is that you apprehend that a matter will be lodged against you Correct. or someone will attempt to seek an injunction against you. So does it dilute the necessity of a caveat in any way? Uh, somewhat, but not altogether, I would think, because a caveat still is the best um, safeguard that you have against any ex parte relief that may be granted against you because as you know if you file a caveat you as a matter of right are entitled to the copy of the application and of notice of the hearing and are entitled to contest the ex parte order which is going to be passed now it will not be ex parte it will be after hearing however if you haven't filed caveat and you rely upon this type of direction issued by the high court then you'll have to check the list every day because you don't know when the case is going to be filed. So the defendant will have to keep checking the list every day and uh, make sure that no case has been filed, which is a much more tedious and cumbersome procedure than just filing a caveat. Right. Because sometimes parties, you remember it's an adversarial battle and people are being very clever about it. So the defendant may deliberately not file a caveat because it may amount to a kind of invitation to the opposite side right. to file a suit right, right. and seek some kind of relief. So you file a caveat and then the opposite side knows, okay, I've got a caveat, which means that they expect me to file a case and seek ex parte relief. Why don't I do that now? Why don't I contact my lawyer now? Right. So this is a, so this is a very tricky area. And uh, yeah, I, I would say end of the day, if you don't want to file caveat, fine, you can just check the list every day and, and see whether the, any case has been filed against you or not. And an order of such a kind makes it a lot easier for the defendants to now um, appear in the first hearing and yes. try and resist that ex parte, uh, try and resist the injunction that will come against them. Yes, yes. Also, there is this tricky question of whether and to what extent the defendant is entitled to contest the ex parte order if he hasn't filed caveat. Uh, right. Because if he hasn't filed caveat and he just turns up when the case is taken up um, for hearing, ex parte hearing on the interim application, then as a matter of right is he entitled to contest that application because even before notice has been issued, can he put his foot forward and contest that application? Right. Or can the court say you haven't filed caveat, yeah. sorry wait for us to issue notice and only then we'll allow you to, right. uh, to, 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 to then file vakalat and then contest the matter by filing objections. Right, so, ah, I see, I see. So delving a little bit deeper into this, how do you think this interacts with um, ad interim ex parte injunctions? Under Order 39, Rule 3. Yes, as you well know, uh, under Order 39, uh, there are two types of injunctions that can be granted. 
in the first instance when you make an application for an inju for injunctive relief the court will the court might grant ex parte relief in favor of the plaintiff without the presence of the defendant so that would be an ad interim ex parte injunction however that is only during the pendency of the application so so to speak that that is an that is an order which is passed which will only be effective until the application for injunctive relief has been heard and disposed of in the main therefore once the defendant has been served and filed his objections in the matter the matter will once again be heard and then the court will consider whether to grant interim relief uh, after hearing both the sides and that interim relief will inure to the benefit of the party until the disposal of the suit the right. ad interim injunctive relief will only inure to his benefit until the application is disposed of right exactly um so i think now moving back to the core principle here sir um just before we uh, end this episode so in my opinion having studied the civil procedure code over 3 trimesters with you i've noticed that the code does indeed provide room to the parties to innovate certain uh, procedural norms it leaves room open for the parties and for the judges to come up with certain modifications to suit their own interests and maybe the code does this intentionally or by way of omission so um how does this interact with a party's intention to defeat the ends of justice to secure the, their own interest now this practice for instance the single judge notes has been going on in delhi ipr cases for the longest time parties have been doing this because the code allows them to do it now is it proper for a judge to step in now and say that even though the code allows you to do something like this we won't because it defeats the end of justice uh, that's a very interesting question um as you know after studying the code for more than 3 for more than 2 trimesters it's a very complex detailed and comprehensive code and it's a one to wonderful piece of draftsmanship which which tries to take into account every possible maneuver that an advocate may make and tries to secure justice for the parties within the adversarial framework uh, however human ingenuity being what it is Uh, lawyers are also all, also are equally capable of somehow circumventing the rules and finding loopholes in the rules so that they can win the case for their clients um so i think in this regard the the practice of the court in stepping in and plugging loopholes wherever possible and making the system more fair is a welcome step in the right direction end of the day you want a, a, an order to be passed after contest after hearing both sides as far as possible because ex parte orders are likely to be orders which are based on false statements uh, erroneous premises etc etc so why not grant relief only after hearing the other side that is the that is the proper way to do things i would think right so then you would consider this a case of um plugging a loophole that has been left open by the code maybe not intentionally because i feel that the code does provide some room for lawyers to be smart as it were yes and the court is now stepping in and plugging that loophole yes um i would think that in so far as the 1908 code is concerned they they have no mention of causeless etc over there right. because remember in 1908 we don't even know whether they had a printed system of causeless right. or what the system was at that time but now the question is how to uh how to factor in the the how to factor in the cause list problem with the system of rules that we have in force and this is something which has cropped up for the first time because now we have online um cause list etc etc so i don't really think it's a defect of the code of civil procedure um and i think that this is probably something which the delhi high court rightly did 
under the Delhi High Court Original Side Rules 2018, which differs slightly from the Code of Civil Procedure 1908. Right. In that, under Rule 14, the court is granted power to uh, issue directions in matters of practice and procedure as it considers just and expedient, which power is not conferred on a regular civil court under the Code of Civil Procedure right. 1908. You do have Section 151, which talks about inherent powers, yes. but that's inherent powers in a particular case which right. is before the court. Right. The court doesn't have any general power to issue directions, right. um, which which are applicable in REM to all cases across right. the board. Right. So this is some power which is there in the Delhi High Court rules, which is I think all considered a welcome step in the right direction. Right. Perhaps we could even think of having such an amendment in the Code of Civil Procedure 1908. Right. Also. Yes. Right. And I think the basic reason, uh, the consensus that we've come to as to why this is a step in the right direction is that it in fact enhances the adversarial process because yes. it gives the other party a chance to step yes. in in that first hearing yes. and contest the fact that an injunction should be granted. Yes, the English principle is that the system is adversarial. You're welcome to fight it out with each other. It's a sword fight, but you must play as per the rules. You can't violate the rules right. and it must be a leveling, level playing field. So I think this is a step in the right direction because it gives the opposite side also a chance to contest the matter and be there at the first hearing. Because we know in India what happens is that you get an ex parte order or an ex parte injunction and then you keep taking adjournments for three or four months. In the meanwhile, the defendant suffers a lot of loss, damage, etc. Right. So why not see to it that he is served in the first instance and he's there when you're getting an ex parte order. So right. that you prevent that whole rigmarole of getting an ex parte order, taking adjournments, then making an application for vacating stay and fighting in court over whether the stay should be vacated or not and then preferring an appeal against that or right. a against that. All that is circumvented if you've served the other side. Right. Fight it out, but fight it out fairly. Yes. And usually, as far as I understand in most IPR cases, um, what happens is the plaintiff is usually the stronger party. The plaintiff is the one who's uh, in a much more privileged position and is attempting to use strategies such as this to place the defendant in a position which is extremely unfavorable to the defendant's interests. Correct, correct. Usually, I think in IP cases, it's the uh, big company which is holding the trademark, which goes to court, uh, alleging that there has been some infringement of uh, trademark, uh, there's been some passing off, etc., and seeking injunctive relief. In which case, um, there's usually some small dealer who is the defendant um, who may suffer an ex parte order uh, if he is not uh, present before the court in the first instance. So I would think overall, it's not a bad idea to right. to make sure that his name is shown in the cause list at least. Right. Yes. So it remains to be seen whether courts around the country will also adopt this practice after having seen what the Delhi High Court has done. Um, a lot more discussions uh, remain definitely on um, the powers of a court that it can exercise inherently, on adversarial strategies uh, to be adopted by the parties, on room left open in the body of the court itself for parties to get smart, as it were. We'll talk about all of that and a lot more in the upcoming episodes. For the first episode, this is all we have for you. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Thank you so much, Aditya. Yeah, see you next week. <laughs>